the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Oh, yes, he is, and he's here to say hello. Welcome. Good to have you with us for this Tuesday, the 16th of October. Happy belated birthday to my grandmother, who would have been... 110 years old yesterday. Wow, that would have been a good long life. Made it to 93. That's a good run. And uh, tomorrow, of course, we mark the anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake. So hope you have um, earthquake preparedness on your mind. And uh, not only perhaps, uh, you know, the perennial concern over earthquakes in California, but might there be a bit of an earthquake here at the midterm elections, the general election coming up in just three short weeks from exactly Today, we're going to spend some time talking about some of the critical measures and decisions that Californians will be deciding. Coming up later on, Joyce Cordy from Reimagine America will join us. There have been some victories for President Trump over the last 24 hours. We'll talk about those, talk about the long and short-term impacts of Hurricane Michael and uh, you know, just the whole notion of the challenges economically of responding to these natural disasters. Hurricane Michael being the third largest in uh, 20th, first, 20th, 21st century history. So pretty significant concerns there, widespread impact. And, of course, uh, hundreds of thousands of people remain without electricity in the region to this very hour. We'll get a complete detailed report when Joyce Cordy joins us later on in tonight's program. All right. Speaking of a whole lot of shaking going on, we'll be much shaking politically. Coming up on Tuesday, the 6th of November, during the midterm general election, well, certainly a lot of important decisions that Californians will be asked to make. There are a total of 11 ballot propositions to consider, in addition to a number of statewide offices, including gubernatorial race, and of course, we also have a race for the United States Senate. Joining me now from the Graduate School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University is the Dean Pete Peterson. Pete, good to have you back on the show. Great to be with you again, Craig. Good time of the year for people like you because of public policy, of course, is your specialty. And, and watching so many of these ballot propositions, for starters, that uh, directly impact public policy is something that, well, frankly, all of us as Californians and residents of our uh, great state here need to be not only aware of, but responding to as we go to the polls on Tuesday, November the 6th. Of the eleven. Talk to me about any major standouts. We may not have time to go through every single one, but um, in terms of the research that you have done, what are some of the ones that Californians really need to be aware of? Well, I think certainly Prop 10 is the one that's getting a lot of attention. This is the local rent control initiative that would essentially repeal uh, an act known as the Costa-Hawkins Rental Housing Act, which would enable and empower uh, every city uh, and town within California to uh, develop rent control policies. Currently, that's limited to a few cities. 
um, and this would essentially make it possible for uh, rent control to move statewide. So does this mean that essentially communities across the state could do what has happened in areas like San Francisco and Berkeley? And I think if you talk to anybody that has been a landlord in either of those two cities, they say the two worst communities in California to own rental property would be San Francisco or Berkeley because of so many property control measures and rent controls. It's almost as if the renters have all the control and landlords have no say-so at all. Yes, and I happen to live in another one down here in Santa Monica, Craig. So I've seen that as well. And really what the research shows, and there was actually a great study on this, if the listeners want to look it up, it was issued by some uh, academics at Stanford back in February, looked at the San Francisco housing market and the impact of rental control, and really found that it not only drives up the cost of rents because it reduces the amount of uh, the development of uh, rental units and housing, and also incentivizes uh, landlords and developers to not only build new uh, condominium units, but also to convert rental units into condominiums. So even though it's called rent control, uh, really what it does over the long term is that it, it reduces the amount of available rental units, thereby driving up rents. And it strikes me that, you know, fairness and being equal, well, those are important ideals. But there's also the the American ideal of the free marketplace. And as many of the proponents of Proposition 10 are trying to market this and suggesting that, well, you know, this is needed because we need to have some kind of fairness because rents have gotten just so far out of control. But at the end of the day, isn't it really what the market will bear? And and if the argument stands for this, then why don't we say that we need to have price controls, which essentially is what this calling for? on car insurance and food and health care and everything else where we decide we're paying too much. Well, you're absolutely right, Craig, but I, w- I would say it's actually we're not letting the market work uh, through how difficult we make it on uh, empowering developers to build uh, any kind of housing, much less rental housing. And so essentially what this measure is a response to is the fact that we've made it so difficult through CEQA and other regulations, both statewide and locally, to build housing and so we've seen, obviously, housing rates uh, uh, costs increase as well as rental rates increase. Uh, but we think the only response to that is is not to attack the regulations to make it tough to build, but essentially to create a whole other set of regulations through rent control. So uh, the recommendation from your viewpoint on Proposition 10 would be what, a no vote? I am a no on that. All right. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm with you on that. All right. Prop 10, that certainly is one of the major ones. What else yes. on your list? Well, certainly Prop 6, right? This is the uh, the gas tax measure, and uh, a yes vote repeals the gas tax that put another, uh, that puts, actually, because it's in effect now, uh, 12%, uh, a 12 cent gas tax on every gallon of gas that we buy. Uh, for much of many of us, that's about $1.20 to $1.50 a fill up more. Uh, we already pay, um, as was recently evaluated, uh, we are sixth in the nation on the level of state taxes on every gallon of gasoline already. And with that extra 12 cents, we move into uh, second place, only behind Pennsylvania, in the amount of gas taxes that we pay. It's right around 60 cents a gallon, and that's before we even add the federal tax on top of that. Uh, the argument on the pro, on the anti side to leave the gas tax in place is that we need the, the funding, which would end up being about $5 billion a year, 
to build roads and bridges and uh, infrastructure and uh, busing and other uh, types of uh, people moving uh, transportation. Um, but again, I, I think that uh, Californians are already paying such high taxes uh, already, not only on gas, but obviously in income and property and so on, that uh, that this is a, a measure that I think a lot of Californians are wondering whether we need it or not. Well, and certainly when you talk about an impact of $5 billion a year in a state whose budget is well north of $100 billion. It's less than 5% of the annual budget. And in addition to the $0.12 cent per gallon gas tax. There's also about a $50 additional fee that got tacked on to our annual DMV registration uh, fees. I assume most folks probably noticed, oh, seems like I'm paying a lot more this year than I did last year. That's the reason why. And of course, I don't know about down your way, but here in the Bay Area, the irony is, yeah, we're seeing that money put to work already. They're building additional toll lanes, which means the freeway that I've already paid for with my taxes will now allow me to ride in it, and I can avoid some of the traffic if I'll only decide to pay even more. And in some areas, it can cost you as much as $9 to go just a scant few miles. Seems to me to be a little bit disingenuous. No, I, again, I agree with you on that, uh, Craig. I, I think that uh, Californians are, are taxed so heavily, and even in this category, again, as I said before, even without this 12 cents a gallon on top of what we're paying already, we're already sixth in the nation in the amount of gas taxes that we pay at the state level. With it, we've, we're in second place. Um, and again, I just don't think we're seeing the bang for the buck and the money that we're paying already. Obviously, I think most uh, commuters are seeing all these SB1 signs being put up all over the state as a way of uh, trying to let people know that their tax dollars are at work. But again, this is uh, we're, we're paying very high taxes across the board. And, and one of my other real problems with this tax is that it, these kinds of gas taxes always are regressive. They're always hurting those at the lower end of the economic spectrum. Um, and frankly, those that are driving their Teslas are not really being impacted by it. Yeah, this is very uh, true. And, you know, moreover, those that are paying mortgages on $1.5 million homes in the Bay Area probably not overly concerned about $0.12 cents a gallon. So this really hurts the pocketbooks of those that are least capable of paying. Right. And I, I know that you see it up in the Bay Area. We certainly do see it down here in Los Angeles that because of the housing costs that we have, we're pushing people in the middle and lower middle class further and further away from where they're working. Now we're going to ramp up their gas taxes to make it more expensive to commute. And so we're kind of hitting them both ways. And I think that really is a window into one of the great policy challenges that we have here in California. Well, you know what? One of these days, uh, apart from this conversation, I would love to get you on the program to talk about that very topic, because as we see the cost of living increase, and as you point out, folks are being forced to move further and further and further out from the major metropolitan economic hubs like Silicon Valley, like San Francisco, it's going to get to the point where the folks that come in and work at the grocery store and work at the local gas station and do a lot of the the non-skilled labor are going to be commuting, you know, two hours each way to go to work, and and how can we expect them to ever be able to survive? 
So there's an important yeah. public policy question here that uh, I think d- deserves spending some good time with. So we'll have to get you back on the program one of these days uh, to talk about that. Okay. What? Uh, so on to 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 summarize Proposition Six. Then uh, this would essentially repeal, repeal Senate Bill One, and that would then, um, if approved, end the portion of additional taxes that we've been paying for uh, not only per gallon, but of course on your uh, your renewal fees. So that would be a yes vote on Proposition 6. What next, Pete? Well, Prop 5, I think, is another big one, and again, goes to this issue of housing. This is the property tax transfer initiative, and so for many of your listeners who've lived in their houses for a very long time, uh, and maybe as they've become empty nesters have thought about moving, uh, even to someplace else here in California, they realize if they've lived in their house for 20 or 25 years, that the penalty that they will pay uh, in property taxes by moving out of where they're at that has been regulated by Prop 13 into a new property that then will bring their property taxes back up to market value actually keeps people in the houses for longer than they really want. And so what this initiative would do would allow those uh, who are moving out of houses that are valued high but paying low taxes to transfer some of those benefits into another unit that they're looking to buy. And uh, again, I think it's something that provides mobility. I know people in my own family here in California that are living in houses that they bought 40 years ago, and I know that this essentially this property tax penalty that uh, they think about if they're thinking of moving is something that, that prevents them from moving into a place that actually would be a better fit for them. You use the term penalty, and I think that's very apropos here. And uh, let's face it, somebody who years ago bought their house, they've been dutifully paying property taxes all these years. Generally, you're making these decisions when you're of retirement age. And to say to someone who bought a house for 200 today, it's worth, say, eight, and you'd like to move closer to the kids, but then you're looking at this saying, okay, my annual property property taxes are going to go from, uh, you know, the, the range of $5,000 a year to eleven dollars or $12,000 a year or more just to, to remain on a par. For a lot of people on fixed incomes, that becomes an absolute impossibility. So suddenly, they're literally forced to stay where they're at. That's absolutely right, Craig. And, and you know, it, it hurts the state in so many ways. I mean, there, there, there would be incentives for people uh, who've been in houses for a long time to move into smaller units and to cre- and have more of a focus in building smaller units for these populations. But for growing families, you know, this, this really reduces the supply of, uh, of larger residential houses that would be made available. Uh, through a, a an initiative like this. So well, I, certainly I would cause me to think twice if I looked at something like this and thought, well, if I have to move and and pay the uh, the so-called moving penalty, as you suggest, all of a sudden I might wind up paying in property taxes what my house payment has been. And that's pretty severe, and that can be very penalizing to a lot of Californians, particularly uh, the ones on fixed income. So Proposition 5, the recommendation there would be a yes vote. We're going to pause real quick. I want to come back to uh, more of our ballot measures, as well as talk about a couple of the top-tier candidates. We're visiting with Pete Peterson. Pete is the dean of the Graduate School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University. We'll take this brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. All right, continue we shall with a look at traffic. 520, what's going on out there? Michael Bennett. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. A look at the California ballot measures and some of the uh, important candidates coming up to a ballot box near you. Tuesday, November the 6th, of course, is the midterm general election. We're getting some insight from the dean of the Graduate School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University, Pete Peterson. Pete, here in the Bay Area, one of the propositions that has an awful lot of money being thrown at it, frankly, from both sides, and that's Proposition 8. Can you give us insight into this? What is this business about if this thing passes, folks that are on dialysis will suddenly be forced to go to emergency rooms? That's the one ad we hear all the time. Right, and and uh, Craig, Prop 8 is ha- actually happens to be one of the two initiatives, including Prop 10, that have just gone over $100 million in advertising. Wow. So you're, the reason that you're seeing a lot of it up there is we're seeing a lot of it down here in Los Angeles. Uh, the, the, the cut through all of the, the gobbledygook around this particular measure, really what this is about are, is the SEIU union fighting against the major private sector provider of dialysis services, which is a company called DeVita. DeVita does not happen to be unionized, whereas a lot of the smaller operations are. And uh, as has been shown in many reports about this measure, uh, the SEIU union is the predominant spender on the pro side for this uh, because they essentially want to force DeVita to unionize uh, the staffing in their clinics. It is very hard, as this initiative proposes, to go into the inner workings of a budget of these companies and somehow force them to, de- to uh, devote more of their profits to service. It is, a, it is, again, like we were talking about in rent control, another uh, uh, cost control measure, a price control measure that rarely, if ever, works. So it sounds like recommendation on Prop 8 would be no. Yeah. I'm a no on that. All right. In the few moments that remain, uh, let's spin to the candidates, unless there's another burning proposition you want to address. Uh, One of the areas I'd like to have you comment on is our gubernatorial race. Sure. Well, we have uh, Gavin Newsom, who seems like he's been waiting to be governor for about 15 years. Uh, And then John Cox, who is a businessman out of San Diego, uh, running against him on the Republican side. Uh, I think Newsom has really tried to play this as cautiously as possible, only agreeing to one debate uh, that happened up there in San Francisco a couple weeks ago. Um, The polls show that there has been a tightening there over the last month. In fact, one poll that I've seen actually has this within about five points with Newsom leading. It is going to take uh, a major effort on the part of uh, John Cox to win. But I think the fact that this is within at least double digits at this point shows that voters really do want uh, people to be talking not just about some resistance movement for the state, but really to fix the problem, so many of which uh, we're talking about here that they're looking to initiatives to try to solve. And certainly at the end of the day, bringing a sense of balance with a legislature that has been entirely controlled by Democrats for many, many years. Some see this, too, as an opportunity to kind of put the brakes on a little bit, bring a sense of, of balance back into government. I don't know that that's something <laughs> that'll ever yeah. fully happen in this state, at least not in my lifetime, but uh, we, we can certainly take an opportunity here uh, to support John Cox and uh, and try to restore some of that balance. It's going to be an interesting senatorial race here. It has been, particularly given the fact that officially the Democrat Party has not been real keen over Diane Feinstein going back to Washington for another six years. 
That's absolutely right, Craig, and I think this race is a real window into the inner fracturing that's happening within the California Democratic Party. Obviously, we have uh, State Senator Kevin DeLeon, who's seen really as a, a very progressive candidate, specifically on issues of the environment. Um, he's someone that has uh, been very um, aggressive in his attacks against Senator Feinstein. You're right to say that Senator Feinstein did not even win the endorsement of the state party at their recent convention. And so, again, I think it really shows uh, what is going on within that movement, which is essentially a break between the old New Deal Democrat wing of the Democratic Party and the new Bernie Sanders wing of the party. Yeah, certainly um, some of the old school a baby boomer generation uh, hanging on for dear life. And uh, you can you can certainly see a groundswell of a shift taking place. It's as if uh, the, the response to the last uh, year and a half under Donald Trump has been the Democrat Party to go even further in yeah. the way out left direction, which seems to be a little bit ironic, uh, but it won't be the first time they didn't read the tea leaves very accurately. Yeah, no, I agree. And again, I I think that this really, the split that we're seeing in the party is happening nationally. But to see it uh, Democrat versus Democrat, as we're seeing in this U.S. Senate race, I think really highlights this division between the younger, uh, more aggressive, progressive part of the wing of the Democratic Party and those that are uh, more on the moderate side. Increasingly, there, there are not many places for moderate Democrats to support. Our friends at the California Family Council have a voter guide available. Anywhere else that you can recommend listeners to go to to get more information? I think that's a great spot. Also, I think another great news organization that's nonpartisan is a, uh, is at calmatters.org. They've got a great write-up on the different initiatives without endorsements, just explaining them from both sides of the aisle. All right, calmatters.org, or you can go to californiafamily.org, californiafamily.org. Dot org. Our thanks to Pete Peterson, Dean of the Graduate School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University, and uh, more information about his work and that great organization online at pepperdine.edu. Thanks, Pete, for the time, and we'll, uh, we'll circle back and talk about some more of these deep public policy issues. like to get in there and maybe spend a whole hour with you one of these days. I'll look forward to it, Craig. All right, my friend. Take care. Pete Peterson, again with Pepperdine University, on the web at pepperdine.edu. the clock tells me. Let's see what Michael Bennett tells me and you too about traffic. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's always a shame that uh, on a day like today when there's really nothing going on in the news to talk about and then we get um, a high-profile guest like Joyce Cordy and wind up discussing, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) pumpkin pie recipes for a half hour. No, I'm kidding. Joyce Cordy, host of Reimagine America, heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. And Joyce has been a busy bee with the political season and so much going on news-wise. And Joyce, thank you for carving some time out of your busy schedule to uh, to join us with some insights on all of this. i got to get your uh, your commentary or your response first to uh, the, uh, the court decision throwing out the lawsuit that had been filed by Stormy Gan- Daniels against President Trump and <laughs> President Trump's thank you note, calling her horse face. <laughs> well, you know, on a on the day after uh, 
the Congressional Research Service and, and the CBO agreed that we're going to have a $749 billion budget deficit. <laughs> I thought that was a gift to the president. <laughs> All the headlines were about horse face. <laughs> you know, uh, damn, until I, until I turned on Twitter this morning, I had not even heard about it. Yeah, and, and, and remarkable, too, because while certainly that's a win for the president, um, dealing with the highest budget deficit in six years is indeed problematic. Fiscal year ending September the 30th came up to $779 billion. That's higher than any year since 2012. It, it seems, and we've talked about this before, it seems that on principle, in relationship to controlling deficit spending, getting that under control, that many of the Republicans have seemingly just sort of drifted off into Nana land, that that's no longer a factor. And, and I have to wonder where the disconnect is. Uh, I, you know, it's scary. As, as you were talking, I was thinking... La La Land. It's two great minds in the same small channel. Um, Mike Mullen, the former Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, I think in his farewell address to Congress, put it best. The debt is the biggest risk to U.S. national security there is. And so how it is that people like Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, who have built their careers on fiscal responsibility, pass this tax cut, and then go, well, let's see if we can go after Social Security and Medicare. There is a reason, guys, that we call that the third rail of politics, because those are insurance programs that you and I pay for. That's not where we're going to cut. And, you know, Craig, if people... If, if, if we could get away from being two warring camps, you know, over, over people who tweet about horse face, we might actually be able to take a bipartisan look at a solution called Social Security 2100, which for the price of a latte, that's what it would cost you, one Starbucks latte a month, we could increase payments, current payments to the bottom half of, of Social Security recipients, people who get six, 700 bucks a month, you know, who could use some help. And we would also ensure that until the year 2100, we had fully funded it. Now, the fiscal re- fiscally responsible me says, that's a really good, cheap solution. Why Mitch McConnell says we can't consider it because it's a tax increase makes me want to bang my head against the wall. Well, and there certainly seems to be a disconnect here. I mean, even as, you know, we, we point out in jest that, uh, you know, a lot of America today is talking about uh, um, Stormy Daniels' loss in court uh, in that uh, defamation suit with President Trump and Trump characterizing her as horse face and, you know, lots of uh, chit-chat going back and forth. And yet here we are uh, with an announcement that we've got an $800 billion budget deficit for the new fiscal year, and our total debt right now sits at $21.6 trillion. And you got to say that fast because it moves so so quickly, you could add another trillion dollars before you get the whole sentence out. And yet, with those realities and the recent tax cuts, 
the first thing that they go to is, well, we need to revisit what's going on with Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Really? Does someone need to remind them we're in a midterm election and they're going to be fighting for their lives yet once again in just two short years? Well, you know, uh, I, I go back to my business background and I say, you know, that is the, large, the worst marketing strategy I've ever heard of. <laughs> you know, it's, it's backwards. It also doesn't serve the greater good of the greater many. You know, it, 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 things like you're not going to do away. One, one, it's not going to happen. All right. The best way to guarantee a blue wave is to threaten Medicare and Social Security. Well, and particularly as you look at the number of baby boomers that are reaching retirement age, there's 10,000 of us every day that reach retirement age. And in short order, there's going to be eight, I'm sorry, 80 million Americans that will be collecting on the Social Security that they had uh, dutifully paid into over the course of their working years, and they're going to expect that money. And coming in and saying, well, you know, gee, we did this big tax cut, and now we can't close the budget deficit, so we'll take the money from Social Security. I mean, I realize that part of it might be rhetoric, but, you know, the notion of that being the political third rail seems to be lost on some of them. And I'm I'm a little taken aback that there would be engagement in that kind of rhetoric so close to the midterm elections with so many races that are so tight that it could go either way. It just seems as if it's it's dangerous fire to be playing with. It, it is playing with fire. It It's definitely playing with fire. And again... The solutions are there, and they're not costly if you do them now. Now, if, if we'd gone with the Simpson-Bowles approach when Obama first came into office, if in 2010 we had gone with the Simpson-Bowles approach, we wouldn't have to talk about Medicare and Social Security because they would be fully funded, okay? And we would be paying down the deficit. But it means that people have to pay their taxes. You know, that's the, the way that, that um, this country always has been run, is that, that in times of trouble, we go to, we run deficits so that in times of, of, in good times, we can pay that deficit down so we maintain our credit and our ability to take care of people when they can't take care of themselves. Well, at the end of the day, don't most Americans hopefully manage their own budgets that way, that when money is tight, there's more spending on the credit card, maybe they do a little borrowing against the house in order to make ends meet, and uh, then when times are better, we do a better job at putting money away, paying down credit card debt, eliminating automobile debt, things of this sort, uh, because we recognize that it will indeed rain again. And yet here it seems as if there's a mentality in Washington, D.C. that it's always going to be a sunny day. And the argument goes, well, the recent tax cuts will free up so much cash to get things moving that we'll see such a huge influx of tax dollars coming into the Treasury that from there will be the source that will help us pay down the deficit. So if that be the case, we've seen a significant reduction in corporate taxes. At the end of the year, when we get into 20. 
2019, we begin to see um, personal income taxes impacted by the uh, the tax measure passed earlier this year or last year, uh, that we should have both working together. And, and yet, so far, instead of seeing more money coming in, uh, it's not enough to keep pace with the money that we're spending, which I think raises a lot of very serious questions about the way the whole deficit is being managed by not just the administration, but by Congress. Well, I think more by Congress, which really controls the purse strings, than the administration. True. The administration administers a set of decisions made by the Congress, but there are some additional contributing factors. One of them, one of them being, you know, the the tax cut more of the personal tax cuts than corporate tax cuts, because personal tax cuts, uh, personal taxes are are like seventy or seventy five percent of the total Treasury receipts versus about 25% from uh, other, you know, from corporations and other uh, one-time receipts. I, you know, I have to say um, tax collection is an issue. Um, if we look at even what's budgeted to be collected versus what's actually collected, we're not, op- based on the number of of convictions recently, plus the New York Times story about uh, Trump's uh, father and how they managed to slip money, you know, through the trust, the family trust, um, underpaying their taxes by a few billion dollars. And now we find that Jared Kushner didn't pay any taxes for uh, the decade preceding um, entering government. Uh, you know, we've got a question of enforcement, too, that that goes to the fundamentals of fairness. You know, our, since the passage of the 16th Amendment, which is the income tax amendment, we have always said that our income tax system should be progressive. In other words, the more you have, the more that you end up paying. Um And that's fair. You can't take from people who don't have. And yet, this particular set of circumstances, when you start saying, okay, we're going to attack social spending while reducing taxes, hit right squarely in the middle class. And when you say immigration, and when you say we need immigrants in order to pay their Social Security, to pay out the folks, the baby boomers, that doesn't work either if you have so much low-wage immigration. Those people can't pay enough to make up the difference. And and those are not only very problematic issues, but again, goes to the core of how voters may respond. And it's too early to tell, certainly, the impact of the tax cut on individual personal income taxes. Um, a lot of the people that I've spoken to say, you know what, for the average middle-class worker, it's probably going to be a wash. In which case, then, if the corporation that you worked for didn't decide to be overly generous and provide you with uh, a nice salary increase or maybe a bonus following the corporate tax reduction, then the question goes to, well, all right, we've got more people working, but they're not working for more money. 
And we continue to see, certainly in regions like the Bay Area, uh, a significant increase in the cost of living. Well, somewhere, somehow, something's got to give, as the song goes. And my fear is what may end up giving um, is a change in the direction of political power in Washington, D.C., because it could be argued by that ever-increasing number of recipients of Social Security and Medicare that uh, they're kind of the sacrificial lamb here. So you put in 50, 60 years, whatever it might be working, and then your reward is you're going to get less than you anticipated because we're trying to close a budget deficit. What? That's not going to bode well, certainly, at the bank for retirees, and it may not bode very well at the ballot box for politicians in Washington, D.C. We're going to get back to more of our conversation. Joyce Cordy is with us today. Joyce's program, by the way, Reimagine America, can be heard every Sunday morning. It's the smart alternative to a lot of the talking head nonsense on TV. You can check her out Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Also get information about Joyce's insights at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. We take this brief time out, and when we come back, we'll get back to more of our visit with Joyce Cordy. Right now, though, a quick visit with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? Joyce Cordy is with us from Reimagine America. Her program Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The answer information on the web at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. One of the other factors I think that's going to play into this, um, we've just come through the third worst storm, and I, I think the news was reporting in the uh, 20th or 21st uh, century history um, uh, with uh, Hurricane Michael, and we're still trying to even come to terms with the degree of damage, let alone even being able to put a figure on what it's going to cost to recover from this. And you add Florence and Sandy and all of these natural disasters that begin to add up. And after a while, with money coming in from the federal government to provide relief, this begins to pour a burden on our tax revenues as well. And this is not even, these are things that you can't even really budget for, can you? Well, they do budget, uh, but it's always an estimate. And um, this this storm, like Maria in Puerto Rico, hit an area which is particularly poor. And so the, the ability to rebuild, uh, especially such devastation, I mean, you know, it's like a bomb went off. Um, it, it is is something we need to one address, and and then we need to prepare for it. Uh, I don't I don't doubt that climate change is upon us, nor do I doubt that we human beings contribute to it. There is actually a French study out today that says it. Um, the idea of from the Paris Accords that we could reforest Europe and that would solve the problem is is not the right answer. Well, and there was just a pretty devastating report out by the UN, uh, which gives some troubling insights. I mean, how, how much of this is easily manageable and reversible? I think is is a matter of debate. But the reality of some of the challenges that we are facing uh, is certainly there. And you know, whether this is uh, due to global climate change or you know just simply the ebb and flow of weather, there's no doubt about the fact that the financial, the fiscal impact is pretty significant. 
It's huge. It's huge, and it's year over year, so it's compounding. Um, so it, it's a deeper and deeper hole. Um, but things like, um, I mean, FEMA plans, their, their budget plans for uh, natural disaster. But, Craig, we're all living on borrowed time out here. I mean, one of these days, we're going to have another seven or eight point earthquake somewhere, um, either in Southern California or here, hopefully not on the Hayward Fault, which would be truly catastrophic. And and we're going to be looking at those federal dollars as well. And so that goes back to our original discussion that says, if you want, if the American people want the benefits of um, health care and Social Security and Medicare and all these other things that we, you know, housing, back to your uh, commercial, um, the the absolute immorality in an area with where where your basic starter bungalow uh, is a million and a half dollars uh, that eighty percent of people who live here can't really afford their home even if they own one they couldn't buy it again um, that um, that things like homelessness and those social issues are so fundamental to our value system that you've got to be willing to pay for them. Well, and the irony is there's a couple of ballot measures that have been uh, tossed on, uh, propositions that we'll take a look at uh, three weeks from today, in fact, that, that that only attempt to put a bit of a Band-Aid on it. I think one, you know, would, would provide something like you know, 20,000 temporary housing units for people that have uh, a demonstrative problem with uh, mental health-related issues. But we're not talking yeah. about providing them jobs and rehabilitation and putting them into a, a, a decent home. We're talking about short-term warehousing like, you know, let's let's set up a couple of tough sheds and, and consider that having addressed the problem. It's bigger than we realize, and sadly, we've not yet waken up to the reality that we've got a big situation on our hands here, and it's one thing to be celebrating low unemployment and to be talking about the spectacular numbers on Wall Street, so on and so forth, but, the, you know, there, there, there are hidden demons kind of lurking in the shadows that, you know, as you point out in your observation regarding the earthquakes. Yeah, tomorrow was the 29th anniversary, coincidentally, uh-huh. of the Loma Prieta earthquake, which is the last uh-huh. devastating one that we had here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And before we say goodnight tonight, the next one could hit. And we are ill-prepared for not just the day-to-day events, let alone dealing with these kinds of emergencies. And meanwhile, we go to la-di-da off to consider doing more tax reductions. Believe me, I'm all in favor of paying the least amount of tax as possible. And I think there's huge degrees of waste and mismanagement and and bloated spending and far too many uh, people on the public dole. But all of that said, we've got to look at not just what's coming in and what's going out, but have a, a better, more reasonable balanced approach to this because my goodness Joyce otherwise if the average family managed their day-to-day fiscal budget the way Washington DC does we'd all be filing chapter 11 we're going to go off a fiscal cliff one of these days if we don't get um, a, a grasp on a grip on 
our fiscal situation. And, you know, one of these days, um, you, you know, I'm going to invite you over to the other side, to my show, and we're going to talk about what we should do, which is called a zero-base budget. Let's figure out how much money we really need to fund the national government and the state government, and let's let's surface some of the real culprits like public sector pensions. Well, and the other Uh, issue, too, here is this whole idea of baseline budgeting that we've used forever and ever and ever. And you talk about economic sleight of hand, you know, a a, a fifth grader who's just being introduced to the basics of economics, you know, like two plus two equals four, three minus one equals two, the basics like that, would look at Mm -hmm. the way we manage the budget through baseline budgeting and say, nobody in their right mind would call this a solid fiscal policy. And yet we've done it at the federal level and at the state level for years and years and years now. Oh, we've been doing it for decades. We've been doing it since World War II. You know, it is time to take a step back. Look at the Pentagon, for example. It is time to take a step back and say, here's where we are. Here's the mission vision statement. Here's the plan to get there. How much should that cost? Uh, forget what, what's in the budget today. How much should that cost? And this individual congressional district idea that, oh, you can't take jobs away from my McDonald's um, plant because, you know, Pete, that there would be jobs lost, and, and but they'd be gained somewhere else, um, is we, we have to stop thinking that way. We've got to find out what government really should cost. We've got to explain that to the American people. And then we've all got to belly up to the bar and pay for it. And at the same token, come to agreement as to what we're willing to do without. And, you know, these are the kind of decisions that families have to make all the time, adults have to make all the time. Sadly, there seems to be a shortage of adults, at least, in Washington, D.C., willing to make the tough decisions, and instead all we do is kick the can down the road yet once again. And one of these days, uh, as my mother used to say, the chickens are going to come home to roost. And then what? You can get more insights on this topic. The election's coming up uh, exactly three weeks today on Joyce's program. You can catch her every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. By the way, you'll find a complete listing of past shows, podcasts, other resources, as well as many of her insights insightful blog postings by going to reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Joyce, we got to get together again before the elections. There's a lot more to talk about. We're out of time for today, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll see if we can't circle back here quite shortly because um, no doubt the continuing slow news day will have its impact on uh, the ballot box come Tuesday, November the 6th. Joyce Cordy with reimagineamerica.org. Six o'clock from KFAX. We are going to get you a look at some traffic right now and the latest with Michael Bennett. Michael? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.